microphone check one two what is this it's the five foot seven assassin in the podcast business and we're back with another episode of QLC TV. My name is Rohan and I'm the host of this lovely show where I aim to give you authentic insight into the world of music, which will be a primary focus as it's my absolute utmost passion in the world. I just love music. I'll also be talking about politics, culture, sports, as well as personal topics related to growing into adulthood. As all of this is delivered from the perspective of a 25-year-old Indian man living in Canada, trying to make sense of not only myself, but of the world. So all in all, I thank you so much for listening and taking part in this creative journey that I'm embarking on with QLC TV. And I just hope that this platform will not only give myself, but give those listening something nice to look forward to when they wake up in the morning because if i achieved that then i've succeeded hey everybody welcome to qlc tv it's episode 12 and i have a really jam-packed episode for you guys today first i'll be covering the new conway the machine album from king to a god then i'll be talking about that whole kanye west crusade for his masters and the masters of every artist in the world supposedly so that's really exciting. There's a lot to talk about with that. I'll give you my thoughts on what I think about his motivations are and how I feel about his involvement with this overall. And then I'll talk about the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is a U.S. Supreme Court justice, and the implications her death has on the Supreme Court future civil rights and civil liberties for the United States and my thoughts about kind of some things that she could have done differently that could have maybe avoided this situation that I think is not being talked about all that much in the mainstream media. So first, I'm going to cover this Conway the Machine record, and I can't wait to talk about it. I'm drinking my soy milk in my cat dad mug. I'm in pure soy boy mode, and I can't wait to talk about this really hardcore street rap. So... This was a highly anticipated album for me. Conway the Machine has been making music since the mid-2010s. He burst onto the scene with a very successful underground project, Reject 2, that got him a lot of acclaim. Conway the Machine, if you don't know, he's part of the Griselda Collective, uh, which formerly was only Benny the Butcher, Westside Gun, and Conway. And he had been releasing music ever since that moment. 2017 hit and he released Grimiest of All Time, or GOAT. And that was in a really, really solid project. And I would say he was probably the first artist to pop out of that group. Next was was Westside, and then Benny really only has really bubbled up as a potential star in the past couple of years. But Conway was that first guy. But ever since 2017's GOAT, he has been dropping a bunch of small, short mixtapes and EPs, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And it left a lot to be desired because, yes, they were solid, they were good, but they didn't really show a large amount of growth in his artistry, both in like the subject matter, uh, but also in the kind of like the... The style, it was always keeping with that same uh, simple 
dusty soul sampling ominous piano loops dirty drums that kind of thing and the projects again were very short and it, it didn't really give conway a lot of time to say a lot of substance here so i was excited to hear this project because the track list was definitely unlike a track list that i would expect from a conway album starting with the fact that it seemed like the project was going to be a full body of work the 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 track length came out shortly after which said it was about 50 minutes so that was really exciting okay we're getting a full complete creative expression from conway hopefully next i noticed was a lot of the more commercial collaborations that were supposed to be on this project as well hit boy who's just been everywhere it seems like in 2020 has some production on this project again and then also Beat Butcher, who's not like a commercial producer by any means, but he was a producer who produced the vast majority of Griselda, the group's 2019 project, WWCD, or What Would Sheen Gun Do? And his style is very interesting because although the, the sound sounds like it may be using samples, it's actually not using any kind of samples. He is a multi-instrumentalist and recorded all the sounds with live instruments so it's very impressive his style and the beats are good but they aren't the same dusty grimy boom bap sound that uh you would expect from a griselda project it's definitely much cleaner a much more polished sound so i noticed beat butcher was all over this project and then in addition to the commercial feelings i got from hit boys production credits you also have a feature from Armani Caesar, Griselda label mate, very kind of commercial sounding artist, and then Dej Loaf, uh, another commercial artist from Detroit. So I was expecting this project to be definitely more clean sounding, more polished, with more of a commercial flavor to it. And for some longtime Conway fans, longtime Griselda fans, I feel like people would definitely be put off by this. They may think that, oh, Conway's selling out. He's not staying true to himself. And I don't agree with that at all because you you started to see Conway start to experiment with more trap sounds, more poppy sounds, more more commercial sounds and flows later in 2019. And then some of the songs that he released on the Alchemist album, the collab, Lulu from this year, as well as Look What Look What I Became from last year, you could see the elements and the breadcrumbs that Conway has been trying to go to this sound or try to incorporate more of this, I guess you could say bling era sound, poppy gangster rap kind of sound for, for a little bit now. And I and I think it I think it's authentic to him. And I think that's the issue when it comes to any artist particularly these more underground lyrical rappers when they do transition to that commercial sound if they do so at all if it doesn't come off as authentic to what they actually wanted to do or they just don't sound like they fit in with the sound and they're just trying too hard to appeal to a different audience that's when there's a problem but i don't see that at all i feel like conway's always had an affinity for that 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 bling era 50 cent almost vibe obviously with more grit 
and a bit more grime to the music. It's de- he's definitely not going to make a complete pop pop rap banger like in the club or something like that. But the track when I actually went to start listening to this album, the track with Armani Caesar is definitely a very danceable club banger kind of beat. And I think Conway fits fits really well on it. I think I think Conway's titan of rap aura, his bravado, his presence on the mic, the sheer brash confidence he has in his swagger, it works well with this kind of music. So I, I have no problems with it. I thought the song was fun. And you know, I will also say this, that I find it pretty hilarious, to be honest, when all of these kind of rap fans come to these lyrical, quote-unquote, lyrical rappers, underground rappers, with all of this energy about like, oh, you sold out, you're making a song that could potentially play on the radio. People did this with like Kendrick Lamar with Damn 2017 album, for example, where people just seemingly think that these artists like Conway or Kendrick Lamar don't like trap music, don't like any kind of poppier sounding music. They just exclusively listen to Big L and Mob Deep in their free time. Like, no, these guys actually potentially like this music, and therefore, if they like the music, they may want to make it themselves. So, again, as long as it's as long as long it's clear that they actually have an affinity for this music and they're authentic in what they're trying to do with it, there's nothing wrong with them experimenting. You can maybe like it or not like it, but that whole sellout tag, I think, is really played out and really dumb. So moving on to what I actually thought about how this commercial sound played out when I actually listened to From King to a God. Well, I would say the Dej Loaf song, although his Conway's production uh, contribution, sorry, to that song was good. I think Dej Loaf wasn't a good mix. I thought her sound didn't mesh well with Conway. It was just very unnecessary. But that overall kind of commercial sound leads to the next point I wanted to make about this project, which is that it's definitely displaying that kind of artistic growth that I was hoping Conway would finally show. Because not only is he maybe experimenting with different sounds, he's actually he's actually trying different things with his flows, and he's even incorporating some singing, like on the tracks seeing everything but Jesus, which is notable for a couple reasons. He's singing on the hook, which at first was very off-putting, but after a while it really started to become very catchy in my eyes. And it, it, it reminded me a lot of 50 Cent again, where 50 Cent would do those sung choruses. And although obviously he's off-key, he's not singing on the, at the right note or anything like that, it just comes off very raw, comes off very authentic, and adds a nice dynamic and flavor to the track. And then Freddie Gibbs' contributions where he kind of like sing-songy raps through his verse is really nice. I like the beat also. It's super uplifting and kind of joyful in a way. And a really, really nice, really nice song and definitely one of the standouts. It's also notable uh, because this song displays some of that growth in the subject matter as well. Because on this song, he's kind of reminiscing on some struggles that he's had in his past with a, a bit more personal details to it than he has in the in in any previous project of his and that kind of more personal take on things is put on steroids on the final track forever dropping tears where he 
talks about his late friend DJ Shea, who's also a producer, and how talking about all of their bond that they had in the past, all of the different kinds of moments that he had with him and, and what he's doing right now and how he's coping with his loss. It was very sentimental, but it was very touching, honestly. He did it with a lot of detail that actually made you feel for him. And that's something that Conway hasn't really presented in his music much of all much at all today. He also displays more political consciousness on the track Front Lines, which was definitely a standout, not only for the flow that was super urgent and very different for him, where he has these odd inflections in that second verse that come off really well, but he also speaks about police brutality in a way that is genuinely very authentic. It didn't come off like, oh, I'm going to make a preachy, like, to pimp a butterfly wannabe track. No, like, he still fit in with his swagger and throughout it all with all of these tracks that display kind of his variety and subject matter he's doing it with the same consistent level of wordplay punchline quality and lyrical ability that he's always used and it's really good to see that he was able to incorporate these other other kinds of subjects into his lyrics but not sacrificing any of the raw technical ability that he's always had so given the fact that this was his most diverse project yet and it had his most variety when it comes to the subject matter and the different kinds of like lyrical tones he took with his music i thought this is definitely his most complete and fulsome creative expression to date and i'm really happy that this is coming from conway who is an artist that i think out of the griselda bunch was the most stagnant up until this year where in the, the time period of about 2018 to early 2019, he was really starting to get stale for me. Like, he just kept making an album that was very similar to the last, very short, uh, to make the problem worse, and just wasn't really giving me much. I was getting much more value from Benny the Butcher's really tenacious delivery and really amazing energy that he always gave to his music and then West Side Gun always provided the luxurious extravagant albums that really show that he was the best album artist out of the bunch but it's now it's nice to see Conway kind of regaining his his focus or just at least sounding more rejuvenated and I think his career is now on a really good path again you know compared to some of his work in the past I would say that I probably prefer Goat uh, from 2017 uh, a bit more than this album just because I still think it has more of like an unapologetic, grimy feel to it that I, I just found was a bit more captivating than this album, albeit it definitely wasn't as dynamic when it comes to the subject matter or the sounds. I still think that that energy and some of the lyrical performances from Conway, as well as some of the guests, particularly Lloyd Banks on that last track of of uh, the GOAT project, I still think those were a little bit better than what I got from, from King to a God. And I would also say that I feel like this project, I have a similar reservation with the production that I got on their 2019 group project by Griselda, What Would Sheen Gun Do? or WWCD. 
and that's that the production on the Griselda group project was almost exclusively made by Beat Butcher, and then on this project, a large amount of the production is created by Beat Butcher as well. And Beat Butcher is a good producer for sure, but his sound is much more clean. It's it's much more less. It's like less colorful, I guess you can say, than the typical soul sampling dusty kind of sound that we get from typical Griselda projects and I think the cleanliness of some of these beats are not as preferred to me at least in my ears as they are to some of the other Griselda projects and the Griselda productions that we've got to date even the Derringer beat at the beginning of this album is also very glitzy although I think it works really well for that for its purpose and for the beginning of the album as it starts off the project at a, on a really tense, suspenseful almost kind of way where Conway's ripping the track and the beat is really grand. It's It really appropriately sets the stage for what will be a much more cleaner, um, a cleaner, more expensive kind of sound we're getting from this project. But overall, as a whole, I would prefer some more color some more dusty sounds to come from a future Conway project. But I think if he incorporates a bit more of a balance with these polished sounds that we're getting off of this project with a little bit more of the the dirty, dusty kind of sampling and then mixes that in with some of the subject matter and growth that he's shown on this project, I think he's really in store to release his best project to date. So overall, I still really like the project. I have some minor critiques here and there, but I'm really proud and happy that Conway is, is has rejuvenated his career and is, and is looking to be on a really good path. So I give this album a 7.7 .7 on 10. So now I'm going to move on to this Kanye West crusade to getting his masters and getting the all artists their masters back. Before I get into anything further, I think we need to all demystify what masters actually are. It's a term that's been thrown around a lot, both these days and in the past, and I feel like a lot of us don't even really know what it means. So a master is a term used to refer to the original sound recording copyright of a song. So when an artist like a Kanye West records a song, they are also creating an original sound recording protected under United States copyright law. And now, it's, so a typical record deal has been set up for artists to fork over their rights uh, to these sound recordings in exchange for a royalty. So a royalty in this case would be a portion of the earnings related to a song garnered through a stream on Spotify, an album purchase, etc. So artists have traditionally agreed to these contracts mainly for a few different reasons. The first being that that was just the status quo. That was just the way it is. So for a lot of artists, it was just what you expected to do. You didn't really expect to get your masters in a major label record contract. Another reason is that oftentimes these artists are in really precarious uh, economic situations where they just need some kind of money some kind of capital to take care of themselves and take care of their family. So they're very vulnerable in that way. But then also, you tended to 
be more likely to agree to a deal that did not give you your masters as an artist because these labels had strong connections in the industry, large marketing budgets, big distribution deals that could promote your product and distribute it very efficiently, which would give you a really good, a much better chance at least compared to the alternative uh, in staying independent without a label in becoming a popular recording artist. But a key factor in this discussion is to note that labels were almost necessary back in the day, pre-internet, to distribute your music on a mass scale because there was no strong direct-to-consumer way through online stores like there are now uh, to actually distribute your music and get listeners the opportunity to actually consume your product. So that's a very key contributing factor in this discussion because right now there is a very easy way to quickly go on your laptop press a button and then boom the whole public has the opportunity to listen to your music and potentially pay for it as well and there are artists that are contemporary to today such as beyonce who are recent examples of artists who are able to broker a deal to get their masters where they instead signed into partnerships with these big labels uh, and licensed their music to these labels. Therefore, the labels in this case are getting a cut of the profits of the music, whereas Beyonce actually gets to still get the vast majority and gets the overall final rights over said recordings. So in essence, many of these deals were very predatory by literally any standard imaginable and so even an artist like Kanye is making pennies off of their records that have sold millions and billions across the world so fast forward to right now Kanye is tweeting all the different pages of his record contract definitely illegal but it's Kanye so I guess it doesn't matter and he's making all of these sorts of demands to different execs in the industry, to his own label, to give him his masters, give all other artists their masters as well, and then even made some pleas to make sure that contracts are simplified to a couple pages, which I definitely think is a really interesting thought given how complex and stupid some of these contracts are. You know, these contracts are often so long and so complex because these labels want to insert very nuanced details into some of the conditions and clauses of the agreement so that they can then argue in whatever favor they want to in court, if needed, with their army of lawyers that they obviously can afford to contest paying for certain things to for the artist, contest paying certain royalties to the artist, etc. So the complexity is always in favor of the label. So Within this rant, Kanye even went on to say that he needs a board seat on all of his different business ventures with Gap uh, and uh, Adidas. Another interesting angle to the story is that as he was tweeting out all those pages of his contract, some observers who were paying very close attention noticed that one of the pages that Kanye tweeted out indicated that Jay-Z got his masters only if Kanye agree to this deal that made sure he didn't get his. So people are all in uproar saying, oh my God, that's so unfair. Jay-Z screwed over Kanye. You know, I 
I think because it's so status quo, I'm not that surprised this happened. Uh, and honestly, Kanye was going to sign a deal likely that didn't have his masters anyways. So if Jay-Z gets his, I mean, whatever. I'm sure Kanye might feel a certain type of way or did, but all over Twitter, he's been made it very clear. He's saying things like, you know, Jay-Z still doesn't get his masters for another 10 years. So that actually validates that this is really a correct interpretation that this exchange for masters actually did occur and it also makes me think a bit that Kanye was saying things like you know don't put uh two kings to against each other like I don't think he ha holds necessarily too many hard feelings about it anymore but it is very interesting and maybe adds some color to a lot of the recent uh, arguments and tension between the two Kanye and Jay-Z over the past several years because Jay-Z was the owner or the, the, the president of Rockefeller Records and they were under the same major label that Kanye is under now and you know making this deal although I understand I feel like Kanye maybe even would have done a similar thing in his place it's still definitely of note because it just shows the shrewdness of this business that for a obviously incredibly popular superstar rapper and Jay-Z had to exchange his rights to his masters, his rights to make sure his kids are fed forever for Kanye to then not have those same privileges and not have the same ownership of his literal life's work. So I think this whole masters conversation with artists is, is really important. So just on face value, I love what Kanye is doing here because I think the way the industry is set up is just completely unfair to the creator. But with Kanye, as I mentioned in episode two of this show, you always have to look at whatever situation he's in from all possible angles because it's often hard to see where his head is really at, where his motives are really at. He's not someone you can just trust based on face value. Is this a completely self-serving move by Kanye because he has been well-documented as someone who's been trying to get his master's for years now, renegotiated his contract with Universal, the major label he signed under for many years now. And then also you have to look at, he has a label that he used to be the president of and now is just the founder of, as Pusha T's the president, Good Music where there's artists there who I would assume also don't have rights to their masters and therefore did Kanye know about this? Did he not know the details of it and let it just be dealt with by his lawyers? And that could be conceivable since Kanye is not a very detail-oriented guy. That's not the vibe I get from him. Or did he know that it was the case and either didn't care because he didn't think at, like many artists it was anything to be done about that it's just the way it is as I mentioned earlier just the status quo or did he knowingly rip them off so there's a lot of ways to look at that but then Kanye tweeted out recently over the past three four days that he's actually going to give back the 50% share that he Kanye West has over the masters of the good music artists so the other 50% is still with Universal, but he's going to give back his share to his artists. So that actually is nice to see. That shows that he's really walking the talk and doing what he said is the right thing to do. 
So overall, what do I think about his motivations here? You know, I think it's both both self-serving because, you know, even if he is advocating for more than artists than just him, this creates public pressure. This creates momentum in the industry potentially, especially since he's actually going to make an action and take real action to give the good music artists back their masters. It makes it potentially more likely that Universal capitulates to his demands and brokers a deal with him to give him back his masters. Especially when you consider the, the random timing of this, considering he's been wanting to get his masters for years now, supposedly. It makes you think that there's obviously some thing that has happened in Kanye's life that's pushed him over the edge where he's going to bring all of this fight public. So... I think it's both self-serving, but also something that he probably does think is right and does care about because Kanye has been pretty consistent when it comes to feeling like the creative and the artists are being taken advantage of by the industry in a variety of different ways. But I also don't want to make Kanye into some absolute altruistic hero here. First of all, he's not the first person to even bring this this problem up he's far from it independent artists both big and small over the last two decades have been going on and on about how major labels are going to screw you and just didn't have the same platform that Kanye had that just goes to show that he's Kanye West is not the first person to be talking like this so I don't think we need to think of him as some trailblazing hero I think we need to think of of him as a once again person that's being very self-serving and that this is definitely going to benefit potentially himself the most but it also may pave the way for other artists to band together to be more smart when it comes to their major label contracts that they sign and understand that maybe there's a different way and also, I just want to, I found it funny in this rant that he went on. He also mentioned that he thinks artists should band together and form a union. And I'm obviously really in favor of that. I'm very, as you can tell throughout this podcast, I'm pretty left wing to say the least. So I'm very pro worker. I'm very pro union. But I do find it funny that Kanye West, the same person that dick sucks Elon Musk and Steve Jobs, he, he tends to be idolizing a lot of people that are significantly and severely against unions. So I just find it funny that his white overlords, the people he always mentions in his rants that he wants to be just like, are the people that would be the first people to say, nah, unions suck, unions are bad for business, etc. But overall, I think good for Kanye, and I just hope that there is some progress done in this situation because ours are in fact getting incredibly screwed over. So the last topic I wanted to cover now is the unfortunate death of former U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So for context, the Supreme Court is the the highest ranking legislative body in the United States and is made up of nine members who are appointed for lifetime appointments. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or RBG, as a lot of people called her, was a Supreme Court justice that was 
a Democrat and was appointed by Bill Clinton. So she died at the age of 87 due to complications coming from pancreatic cancer. So a few thoughts come to me when I think about this unfortunate death of RBG. The first being the fact that this woman who is in charge of interpreting law at the highest ranking court body in the entire country, doing one of the most stressful and complex jobs imaginable, was doing that at the age of 87? 87? You know, people are currently in the process of questioning both presidential candidates' mental capacities to be able to to man one of the most stressful and complicated jobs in the land, which is the job of the president. Yet, there's no problem with a Supreme Court justice being at the age of 87. It just seems like just seems like too old to call me ageist all you want but i just think that's a bit weird i feel like that's just a bit weird especially if it's a lifetime appointment where at any moment if these people die the party in power can just appoint whoever they want without any kind of democratic vote by the actual citizens of this country but i'll get to that part which is really important in a moment but the other thing that came to my mind when she died was the, in my opinion, pretty obvious elephant in the room, which is that her death and consequently her open Supreme Court seat raises the issue of voting and the overall efficacy of it. So due to this vacancy, the party in power, which is Trump and the Republicans, will be able to appoint a new Supreme Court justice to fill the seat. They are obviously going to be picking a conservative. They already have... Uh, set their sights on Amy Barrett, who is a conservative Virginia district judge, to fill this uh, vacant seat. And the Democrats really don't have much of any political uh, mechanisms in their toolkit to actually delay or block this nomination. So given the fact that the election is in November 3rd, uh, the Republicans obviously are trying to get this done immediately, and it looks like they will be able to do it, as they also have the majority of the seats in the Senate, which is the body in the U.S. government that would approve or deny the nomination of the president in power. Yet it's funny to mention that, that this, the Republicans are going ahead with this nomination and definitely want to push it through, given the fact that November 3rd is the next election, and yet when Obama was in power, and obviously was a Democrat and wanted to nominate a Democratic Supreme Court justice to fill a recently vacant spot during his tenure, the Republicans said that no, that would not be proper, that would not be good, that would not be following our norms in the government, that you can't just nominate a Supreme Court justice in an election year, that's just unbecoming. Well, turns out that was just bullshit. Because mind you, that was 293 days since since the nomination that Obama wanted to make for a, um, a justice at that point would have been Merrick Garland. It was 293 days before the election. 
So it is just about five weeks before the election and the Republicans are going to just go forward and they don't care at all. So this situation could bring you to think one of two things. Either, you know, voting matters a lot because the party in power has the ability to shape the Supreme Court and appoint someone for a lifetime appointment as soon as there is a spot open. Or you could also think that, you know what, voting doesn't matter at all because even when the Democrats were in power under Obama, they failed to even get their vacant seat filled during their time and are going to fail again to stop the Republicans from nominating this replacement judge. Therefore, both parties are useless, terrible, so why does it matter? Well, my opinion is that one party, the Democratic Party, is very clearly corrupt too, but just in general, so incompetent as an opposition. And simultaneously, the Republicans are ruthlessly strong-willed politically and will just defy any and all vague, unspoken norms of decency and get what they want no matter what. Therefore, it actually makes the case that voting for the Dems, the Democrats, is, is even more important because they are useless as an opposition and will do nothing to stop the Republicans' agendas from passing if they lose the next election and Trump gets reelected. And finally, what this whole situation has made me think about is what Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself did to bring us to this point and her overall kind of legacy in general. So while Obama was in power, there was a strong pressure very publicly to get her to retire because she was of old age and she was at risk of anything happening to her and needing to be replaced with the risk that she may need to be replaced when it's not a Democratic in power and actually a Republican in power, aka this situation that we're in right now. So there was a lot of pressure to get her to step down, and she refused to quit. She was very defiant in her position, saying that she only wanted to retire when she felt she couldn't do the job anymore. And instead of leading to a public movement against her, a cult of personality, which was already forming, just got even stronger. She was being touted as this feminist icon, as this hashtag girl boss, where she was defying the pleas of obviously mostly men to get her to step down. And people began worshipping her. She was becoming such a celebrity. She had her her face and her likeness used in many different kind of like memorabilia, tote bags, water bottles, whatever you want to think about it. And considering she's a judge, it's important to note she has to be at the very least okay with this because she can easily file for some kind of legal action to remove this. So she was obviously okay with this, and she embraced it. There was a book written about her using the title Notorious RBG, which was a name that she'd been given uh, b before that, which was referencing the late Biggie Smalls, the Notorious B.I.G. rapper from Brooklyn. And she was overall just becoming a celebrity, as I mentioned, and the prototypical girl boss that a lot of liberals white liberals in particular, aspired to be. 
And unfortunately, that girl boss's ego and refusal to, to, to retire when so many people were telling her that this is the best thing to do to protect the country against another Republican conservative judge getting replaced in her spot. This is what happened. This is what brought us there. So what this means is that key legislation such as Roe v. Wade that protected abortion rights are being in danger of being revisited and overturned, along with any other important legislation that maybe doesn't align with conservative values. So this also makes me think of the fact that her ego was the reason why she kept this job for so long and now screwed over a lot of progressive potential progressive changes given the fact that a Republican is going to be nominated. But it also makes me think of why are you allowed to have a job like this for as long as you want? That seems very anti-democratic, especially given the U.S. Supreme Court has a crazy amount of power in the country. But here we are again, given her ego and this weird system that is very anti-democratic, the U.S. is in even more crisis mode than they were pre her death. And a lot, and in a lot of ways, the girl boss, RBG, is partially or largely to blame. And I could also go on and on about her questionable voting record, which is being evangelized at this moment, or the fact that she publicly mocked and criticized Colin Kaepernick for his very famous anthem protests against police brutality and racism. Uh, Colin Kaepernick was a former football player for the 49ers, as uh, many of you may know. She characterized the the uh, protests he was making as dumb and never apologized for it. So that shows that the progressive queen narrative is a bit off. But the more important thing is that this is bigger than RBG. Again, why are lifetime appointments a thing? Why does the Supreme Court have so much power? The fact that a death of an 87-year-old cancer patient is the reason why abortion rights may be overturned. It just seems like a really messed up system. It's really scary times in the United States. And I just wish everybody out there in the United States listening here, I'm hoping for the best. But you really have to understand that, yes, although I mentioned that voting would be a good tactic here to kind of curtail some of the some of the real destruction that can happen to civil liberties and progressive values. People really got to rise up and support these grassroots movements because those are going to be the key reasons that any kind of progressive change will happen given the fact that the Supreme Court now is going to be stacked potentially 6 to 3 in terms of conservatives to uh, Democrats. And that means legislative changes are going to be much harder to come by. So we've really got to put public pressure and galvanize the citizens to actually come together and demand real and meaningful change. So that concludes what I wanted to talk about in today's episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I really appreciate the support. 
I love doing this, and I can't wait to continue doing more of these episodes of QLC TV moving forward. If you want to follow me, support the podcast, please subscribe on all the podcast channels that you use, whether it be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so on. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at Roview, so that's R-O-H-V-I-E-W, and shoot me a comment, send me a DM, and feel free to suggest whatever topic you think I should cover, whether it be some political discussion, music, etc. Or if you just wanted to send me some feedback about something that you think I should improve on or consider changing as it relates to the show, I'm definitely all ears. I wanted to start this podcast to, to help myself grow, help myself uh, express myself more efficiently, more concisely, more effectively. So I'm always open to anything that I should improve on, whether it be about how I deliver the show or just to criticize some horrible take that I had. I'm all ears. And I'd like to extend an open invitation to anybody who's listening right now who would like to join me in a discussion on any topic of your liking. Just shoot me a DM, post a comment, and I would love to do that because I want to connect with you guys who are listening as much as I can and foster a community. So thank you once again for listening. Peace.